uh, the last evening uh, lessons, we've been looking at the Garden of Gethsemane uh, pretty uh, extensively, and what you have seen in this scene where Christ is in the garden are many things. We saw uh, the sorrow of Christ put on display um, as he asked that uh, the, this cup would be passed from him, but he says, uh, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Uh, but there is much anguish uh, in the soul of Christ uh, that we are to, to, to consider. Um, we also saw the biblical theology of the garden scene, uh, where Adam in the garden, uh, what does he do? He falls. But what does Christ do in the garden? He, he's victorious. So although there's much agony and sorrow in the garden scene, uh, we also see that there's much victory in the garden scene. You know, Adam in the garden runs away from God when he sins. But when Christ, who is going to bear the sins of his people on the cross, what does he do? He doesn't run away. He doesn't hide, but he meets God face to face, and he prays with God. Right? Um, now, we want, to, we want to move up Golgotha's hill, and we want to see uh, what the cross was all about. And we're going to do this not only today, uh, next week, but also next month, we're going to consider uh, what is happening uh, on the cross. And there's many theories of what happened on the cross, right? Uh, many things many people want to say uh, when we consider the death of Jesus Christ. I mean, the death of Jesus Christ, it is uh, one of the most, if not the most, uh, important events in the life of Christ. We a lot of us hang our hats, not only that Christ lived for us, but he died for us. We sing of it, that Christ died for our sins. But what does the death of Christ do? What does it accomplish? What does it mean for Christ to die for us? Many people think that, uh, well, on the cross, it is the Father pours out this spiritual wrath upon the Son. The, the Father is angry at the Son he lets out all of his anger that he has toward us upon the sun. The sun takes it, absorbs it, exhausts it, and then now we are, there's no more wrath, there's no more uh, um, uh, offense uh, from us toward the Father, anything like that. Um, there's many theories of why Jesus cries out, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, what does that even mean? Is there somehow some break between the Trinity, between the, the Father and the Son? Right? When we think of the satisfaction of the death of Christ, how does Christ satisfy the righteous demands of God's justice? Is it because he lived a perfect life? Um, so there's a lot of things that, a lot of questions uh, that come about when we consider the death of Christ. It's much more than just there's a man up there who's the God-man and he's dying. <laughs> but there's a lot of other questions that need to be asked. And one of those questions uh, is indeed one of the most controversial questions, one of the hardest questions to answer, um, and it's this question here. Who did Jesus die for? Who did Jesus die for? We say that Jesus died for our sins, but are we also saying that Jesus died for everyone else's sins? The common, the, the common um, theme of Christianity with respect to the death of Christ is simply this, that Jesus Christ pays 
for the sins of the whole world. That is almost Christianity 101, right? That Jesus loves you and that he paid for the sins of every single person that's ever lived. That's what I was taught growing up and that's what many of you uh, used to believe or maybe even believe still that Jesus pays for the sins of everyone. So when Christ dies on the cross, he's dying for the sins of me, for you, and for the people in hell. He's paying for their sins. Right? And what we want to do this evening is we want to consider that question of who did Christ die for? Uh, if you are familiar with some of the debates uh, within the Reformed uh, church as opposed to other churches. Uh, this is uh, at the heart in many ways of the, the Calvinist and Arminian debate, right? Where the Arminians believe that uh, Jesus dies for every single person but doesn't really secure the death of every single person. But he dies for them. And it's up to that person to actualize the death of Christ. Then you have the Calvinist or the Reformed view, which says that Jesus dies only for the elect. Jesus doesn't die for every single person, but he only dies for a specific people. And when I say specific people or particular people, we want to think that it's just five people. Right? It's a multitude of people that he dies for. Okay? But this indeed is a very um, controversial doctrine. It goes by the name of many things. Limited atonement, you might have heard before. Uh, but for the sake of, of this lesson, I'm going to be referring to it as particular redemption. Particular redemption. And what that simply means, or particular atonement, and what that simply means is the death of Christ for, was for a specific people. It wasn't for everyone. Okay? The death of Christ was a, for a specific people, for a certain people group. He didn't die for every single person in the world. Okay? When I was younger in the faith, um, this is the question that brought me into Reformed theology. Uh, was this question of who did Christ die for? Uh, in fact, that's one of the questions that I asked um, my brother, Pastor Antonio. Who did Christ die for? If, if Christ dies for every single person then why is that person in hell paying for their sins if Christ died for them? It just doesn't make any sense, right? And then what was the, what's the common response? Well, they're paying for their sins because they fail to believe, right? And we'll get there. But ultimately what that means is there's a sin that Christ didn't pay for on the cross because unbelief is a sin as well. We'll get there. Before we look at the... And I want to, I want to consider uh, this question of who did Christ die for in two ways. Number one, the intent of the atonement. And number two, the extent of the atonement. So the intention of Christ's atonement and the extent. Who is it extended to? Is it extended to every single person or is it extended to a specific people? Okay? So the intent of the atonement and the extent of the atonement. Everyone, that's my sister, Rosita. You don't know. <laughs> the, the, the intent of the atonement and the extent of the atonement, okay? Um, 
let's, let's first consider the intention of the atonement. The intention of the atonement. Uh, before we look at the intent of Christ's atonement, let's first quickly define what it means to make atonement. What does it mean to make atonement? We, know, we hear this word, right? Atonement. And it, uh, we read of it in the Old Testament. We sing of it, right? Christ makes atonement for us. What does that word mean? Simply put, atonement means at one with. At one with. Uh, think of it as being in harmony with someone, okay? To atone means to make amends, to reconcile. So if you... If you're writing notes, you can put atonement dash definition to reconcile, okay, to reconcile. It's to bring two parties who are at odds with one another together, okay. I'm sure many of you have had to make atonement before for your friends, right? There's friend A and friend B who are at odds with one another. You have to somehow mediate that, uh, and that person has to somehow make atonement for uh, whatever they did, We see this in the Old Testament that God commanded Israel to set aside one day each year, the tenth day of the seventh month, which was called the Day of Atonement. Here the people were to bring a sin offering, which would be a spotless animal sacrifice, whose blood was to bring in to make atonement, or brought in to make atonement. So in the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites were to bring in a spotless animal, Right, And the blood of that animal would reconcile God and the sinner, or the Israelite. Right? The blood was to reconcile, to make amends between God and the sinner. In Leviticus 17.11, God had said, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your, for your sins. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. So it is the blood of an innocent or spotless sacrifice that brings together two parties. Okay? Hebrews 9:22 says without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. So it was essential for uh, an animal to be sacrificed and for that blood uh, to be there in order that two parties would be reconciled. Uh, so here in the Old Testament the spotless animal was used as a sacrifice that would make an atonement by the shedding of blood for the people of Israel. Quick note, thank God we don't have to bring an animal anymore to the altar. Uh, We don't have to uh, find a lamb or anything like that, a spotless lamb, um, because ultimately what these animal sacrifices pointed to was who? Jesus Christ, right, who is uh, the spotless lamb, uh, who was slain before the foundation of the world. Now let's consider the intent of the death of Christ. The intention of the death of Christ. What was the motivating factor in the death of Jesus Christ? What was the motivating factor in the death of Jesus Christ? In order to understand the intention of the death of Christ, we have to start from the beginning and understand the covenant of redemption. And simply put, uh, A.W. Pink says, the covenant of redemption is the everlasting covenant uh, or covenant of grace that is mutually that is the mutual agreement into which the father entered with his son before the foundation of the world respecting the salvation of his elect Christ being appointed the mediator he willingly consenting to be their head and representative 
So simply put, the covenant of redemption is the agreement between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where the Father and the Son are the two primary parties of this covenant, where the Son is to be the head and the redeemer of the elect. So what that simply means is the Son willingly and voluntarily agreed that he would be your federal head, that he would represent you. Just as Adam represented you, and we all died in Adam, Christ represents you. So if Christ succeeds, you succeed. If Christ fails, you fail. Jesus Christ, or the Son, took upon this, uh, this task. The Son is to voluntarily take the place of those whom the Father had gave to the Son. And this is all for the glory of God. The Son is to glorify the Father by accomplishing the work his Father gave him to do before he ever became flesh. So there is a work that the Father gives to the Son. It is to uh, be a federal head. It is to come in the place of others. But it's also to live righteously upon the, to the law. It's to die a sacrificial, substitutionary death. And we see this uh, all throughout the Gospels that uh, Christ is, does all things to glorify the Father. John 6, verse 7, 37 through 44 says this, All that the Father gives, to, gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should, should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, this is not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here we see several times in this section that Jesus emphasizes the fact that he has come down from heaven to accomplish the will of the Father. I've come down not to do my own will, but the will of the Father. In verse 37, Jesus speaks of the Father giving to the Son a specific people group. In verse 38, Christ speaks of coming down from heaven to do the Father's will. In verses 39 and 40, Christ speaks of the Father's will for the Son is to lose none that the Father had given him, but raise them up on the last day. And everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And in verse 44, Christ speaks of the effectual call of the Father. He says that no one can come to me unless the Father sent, uh, sent the Son draws him. So, in other words... No one in and of themselves can turn to Jesus Christ. But it is only the Father that draws them, that enables them to turn to Christ. So as much as we try to scream, you know, in our unsaved brothers and sisters' faces and, and, and cry over them and weep over them, which we should do, we have to understand that it is only the Father's effectual call that ultimately will draw them to Jesus Christ. 
So it's the Father's election of a specific group of people that defines who comes to the Son and who's raised on the last day. And that's, that's important to note, right? The Father's election is what defines who comes to the Son and who's raised on the last day. So we have to ask, who's going to be saved? All the ones that the Father chooses to be saved. Here we see the intention of the Father in sending the Son. It's clear from John 6 that the Father does not plan to send the Son to save everyone, but rather only the people whom the Father has given to the Son. Matthew Harmon, uh, Harmon notes, uh, particularism attends the planning and making of the atonement, not just the application. And what that simply means is this. Every individual that the Father gave to the Son was intimately known and personally chosen. So if you are saved right now, if you believe that you are saved, then it's not by random chance that you are saved. It's not that you just happen to believe, but rather you were, in times past, intimately known, and you were personally chosen to be saved. That's what that means. And all the ones who are known by God are the ones who Christ dies for. J.C. Ryle makes this point. He says, in short, God's eternal election is the first link in that chain of a sinner's salvation of which heavenly glory is the end. None ever repent, believe, and are born again except the elect. The primary and original cause of a saint's being, what he is, is uh, God's eternal election. Why are you saved, ultimately? Because God chose you to be saved. And how do we know who Christ died for. It is only the ones whom the Father chose for Christ to die for. Another text that speaks of the intention of Christ's death is seen in John 17. We read in verse 1 through 9, When Christ Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. Now notice that. Who does the Father or who does Jesus give eternal life to? He says here, all that you have given to him, to me, I give eternal life to. And Jesus, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God of, the, of Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. So for those that want to say, well, no, Christ dies for the whole world. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me, and I have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I had given them the words that, give, that, uh, words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I am, that have came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And then here's a, just 
I think the nail of the coffin to all those who believe that Christ dies for every single person in the world. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Here we see again the intention of the Father sending the Son. The intention of the Son was to glorify the Father. How will the Son glorify the Father? By doing the work that the Father sent the Son to do. Now, what is that work that the Father gave the Son to do? By manifesting the Father's name to his people in order that they will be saved. Notice in verse 4, Jesus says that he has accomplished the work that the Father has given him to do, that he has finished the work of atoning for the sins of those who the Father had gave to him. And now he's praying for them as their high priest in order to bring them to glory. What we see here is there is a, a personal nature in the intention of the triune God in redemption. Here John, in John 17, Jesus says in verse 2 and 3, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom sent, who you have sent. In verses 6 through 9, I have manifested your name to the people who have gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And in verse 9, he says, for I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom have given me, for they are yours. Notice, friends, that Jesus is not praying for a nameless, faceless group. He's not praying for generic humanity, so to speak. But he is praying for a specific people. In this John 17, he's, he's not thinking of just humanity in general. But if you are saved, he's thinking of you. He's thinking of that group that whom he saves. And this is the point that's so important because we have to understand that Christ's bloody death and his high priestly work go hand in hand. Christ's death and his priestly work go hand in hand. What I mean by that is uh, it's not as if Jesus can die for someone and not pray for them. If he dies for you, he must also pray for you. And the notion or the common notion that Jesus died and now is passively waiting for people to accept him is false. You ever hear about that? That Jesus is knocking at the door waiting, Right? This means that if Christ died for every single person in the world, hear this, that he must also intercede for every single person in the world. If Christ dies for everyone, then he has to pray for everyone. And if we say that Christ died for every single person in the world, and we know that every single person in the world won't be saved, then does that mean that Christ fails to intercede for them? If Jesus died for everyone in the world and his intention was to save all mankind, then why in John 17 does he refuse to pray for the world? Doesn't make any sense, right? Why would he not want to pray for everyone in the world to be saved if he died for everyone? But here we see he doesn't die for everyone. Why? Because he doesn't pray for everyone. He only prays for his own, the church. 
One theologian states, one is left with three possible choices. First, Christ, Christ pays for everyone, and the Father refuses to answer Christ's prayers. This option is unscriptural and impossible, for Christ doesn't pray for all. And we are told that Christ's intercession does save to the uttermost. Second, Christ died for all, but refuses to intercede for all. This will place a gross disharmony within Christ's redemptive work, meaning he can't save you and then not pray for you. They have to go hand in hand. Third, which we believe is the, the best choice and most scripturally uh, foundational choice, Christ died only for the elect and thus prays only for the elect. This is the only option that's scriptural and makes any sense. So it's clear from these two texts that the plan of salvation that the Father gave to the Son wasn't for everyone, simply put. That Jesus didn't come to earth and then suddenly want to die for everyone. But rather, Christ upholds the covenant of redemption by only dying for those whom the Father had gave to him. The Father chooses who will be saved, and Christ dies for only those whom the Father chooses. He doesn't die for every single person in the world. He only dies for his elect. And thus he only makes intercession for them. Let's consider the last and final point, that is the extent of the atonement. Now this is going to answer, uh, and we did that in some ways in the last point, but who did Jesus die for? Who did Jesus die for? Who is Christ's death extended to? Okay. One view says, there's, there's primarily three views, but there are some distinctions within these views. But one view says the extent of Jesus Christ's death was for all people, therefore all will be saved. In other words, they believe that God intended to save every man by the death of Christ. And since Christ died for everyone, everyone without exception will be saved. There's, there's no hell for anyone. But Christ died for every single person. I do believe, friends, that that is the most consistent view if you're going to say that Christ dies for everyone. If you want to uphold this view that says Christ, no, he dies for everyone, then you have to ultimately say, well, then there has to be no hell. Right? We call this the universalist view. The universalist view. Another view says the intent of Jesus Christ's death, and hear this, this is what many believe now, the common um, uh, theory of of the atonement. Many believe that in the intent of Jesus Christ's death was to make salvation a possibility. Meaning Jesus on the cross bore the sins of every single person who would ever live only to give them an opportunity to be saved. Now what this does is it makes everyone savable but doesn't actually save them. It makes people savable, but it doesn't actually save them. This is called the Armenian view, right? This is the sort of the, the opposite of the Calvinist view. Then there's the third view, which says that the intention of Jesus Christ's death was to actually and really purchase 
and redeem his people from their sins. That Jesus doesn't make salvation a possibility. Therefore, you have to actualize it by you believing. But rather, he actually dies for you. This is the Reformed view. Um, The atonement was for a particular people, not a general people. If you are saved right now in Christ, right now as we speak, then Jesus Christ truly and really died for you. He didn't necessarily, he didn't make salvation a possibility for you, but he actually paid for your sins. Christ's death was for the elect, and for the elect only, not the entire world or for everyone else. Now, what's the scriptural evidence for that? Okay, Matthew 121, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now notice the angel says he will save his people from their sins. The question that arises is, who is Christ's people? Is it everyone? Is it only for the Jews? Who did Christ come to save? And we see that Christ only comes to save those whom the Father had gave to him in eternity past. But also notice that the angel leaves no room for Christ to make salvation a possibility. For he says that he will save. He will truly save. He will not potentially save, but he will save his people from their sins. One theologian has said the angel glorious declaration regarding regarding Jesus could have not been made if Christ did not actually secure any person's salvation, but only merely made open the possibility of salvation. In other words, if Christ didn't actually save and secure the salvation of his people, but merely made salvation a possibility, then the angel in this passage would have been lying. Because he doesn't actually save, but he only possibly saves. You see, the difference between the Reformed view and the more general view of the atonement is simply this. You have a Christ in the Reformed view who actually saves, and you have a Christ in the general view of the atonement who potentially saves. You have an actual saver, Savior, and you have one who is a Savior, but you have to believe in order for him to be a Savior. Let's look at another passage, John 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says in uh, verses 14 through 16, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Quick point there is everyone in the world sheep. No. Right. Scott is on the money. They're goats, right? They're not sheep. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one shepherd, one flock and one shepherd. And here what he says in verses 24 through 28. So the Jews gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Here in this portion of Scripture, from the very lips of the one who was going to make a sacrifice of atonement, Jesus Christ explicitly teaches a particular redemption. Jesus does not lay down his life, as Scott said, for the goats, but he lays down his life for the sheep. It's only for the sheep who Christ lays down his life for. Here we see the design of the atonement is restricted only to those whom the Father had gave to the Son. But notice the Jews even say, why can't I even understand this? They ask Christ. And what does Christ say? Because you are not my sheep. You don't understand what I'm saying because you are not my sheep. But my sheep know my voice and they hear me and I give them eternal life. We have to ask again, the whole world is not the sheep of Christ. Because if the whole world was the sheep of Christ, then he would give the whole world eternal life. But we know that not every single person is given eternal life. <clears throat> Matthew twenty six twenty eight says this, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for, the, for many for the remission of sins. Notice that the blood that Christ shed is only for those who are a part of the new covenant. There is a link between the new covenant community and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. That's why we say Jesus Christ dies for the church. He doesn't die for the world. Because those of the church are those who are part of the new covenant. In Mark 10.45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Not all, not everyone, but many. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, how do we see particular redemption there? Here we see that Christ gave himself up for the church. Not every single person in the world, but only the church. Now, let's say that Christ dies for everyone. That's the common belief. Christ dies for every single person in the world. And how do we make sense of this passage here? Who is the church then? Also, does that mean that husbands are supposed to give themselves up to every woman who's ever lived? Since Christ gave himself up for every single person. We know that this passage is a great model for how husbands are to love their wives. But if you take the theory that Christ dies for everyone, then you have to ask, who's the church? We have to ask, are we as husbands to give ourselves to every single person? The problem uh, with that view is according to Ephesians 25:25 and the rest of the Bible, the intention of Christ's atonement and the extent of Christ's atonement was only to a particular people. And the problem with these other views is if we say that the intention of God was to save everyone through the death of Christ, then we have to say that people all throughout history have frustrated the plans of God. 
If it is God's plan to save everyone, but we know that everyone's not going to be saved, then man has frustrated the plans of God. Because it's God's plan to be saved, but it's up to man to believe. So therefore, man has distorted the plan of God. Let me give you just a few more. Hebrews 9:12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of bulls and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I think this is really the heart of the matter here. Does Jesus Christ really secure our salvation? Or does he make only salvation a possibility? Now, it doesn't say that Jesus did his part and that we have to do our own part in believing. That's what many believe about the atonement. Christ dies for you. He makes salvation a possibility. He did his part. Now you have to do your part in believing. But the writer of the Hebrews says he actually secured redemption for his people. Jesus didn't die to merely remove the obstacles of our salvation, nor did he die to make men redeemable. But rather, Jesus Christ actually redeemed and purchased his, our sins, purchased his people on the cross. He doesn't just remove barriers. He doesn't just make men redeemable. But he actually redeems us. He actually pays for our sins on the cross. Hebrews 12:2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, if Jesus didn't actually save anyone by his death, then he would have not faced the cross with joy, but rather anxiety. But I believe that Jesus faced the cross with joy for many reasons that we'll get to in the coming months. But one is because he knew that this death was actually going to secure his people's salvation. He didn't go to the cross and he didn't go up Golgotha's hill in anxiety saying to himself, man, I really hope someone accepts this. But he went to the cross with joy, despising the shame because he knew whom he was dying for and all those whom he is dying for will believe. The writer uh, writing to uh, the Roman Christians, Paul says, Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised up because of our justification. To the Galatians, Paul writes, our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us up from this present evil age. The simple point of this point, overall point, is this, that Jesus Christ and the uh, extent of his death was not for everyone, but only for the church. He just didn't die for everyone, but only for the church. Now, before we move on to just some practical applications, let me just say this. <clears throat> when we say that Jesus Christ only died for the elect, we don't mean that his death was only sufficient for the elect. We don't mean that his death was only sufficient for the elect, that he only did enough to die for only a specific people. But maybe if he shed his blood a little bit more, and maybe if he was on earth for maybe 35 years, then more people can be saved. That's not what we mean. We, what we mean is that, that Jesus Christ's death was sufficient for all. If the Father chose to save the world, 
then the whole world would be saved because Christ's death is of infinite value. But it's only efficient. It's only effective for the elect. Now, if you reject that, then you have to say that Jesus Christ failed in doing some work of redemption or that you have to reject the hypostatic union, that he's not the God-man, that his blood is not of infinite value. So, friends, when we say that Jesus Christ only paid the sins for his own people, please don't think that, well, because the blood that he shed was only for them. But if he you know, shed a little bit more blood, then more people could have been saved. <laughs> right? That's not what you mean. It was sufficient for everyone. Everyone could have been saved. But it was only for effectual for his own people. Okay? <clears throat> Let me just give you one application and then just a few reasons um, uh, or, I guess, a, a few red flags if, if someone rejects this doctrine, okay? Just real quickly. Uh, what is the joy that we receive from this doctrine? All right. how, do we, how can we, uh, in other words, rest our heads on, th- on this great doctrine at, on, at night, right? It's simply, I think, this. The joy that we receive is my salvation is accomplished by Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ really did save me. That only those who believe in a particular redemption can fully trust that Christ fully accomplished my salvation on the cross. Only those who believe in particular redemption can say, as one chosen by God, the Father sent his Son to save me from my sin. In love, he sent his Son to live a righteous life for me. So when Christ is living on the earth, he's actually living for me. When he dies, he's actually dying for me. Not a nameless, faceless people. Not generic humanity. But he has me on his heart. And he's thinking about me. Saints, only those who believe in particular redemption can say that I have been saved through the sacrifice of Christ. That Christ actually and really died and secured my salvation. Now, Let's just consider a few things here. What happens if we deny this doctrine? There's many people who deny this, as you might know. If Christ's atonement is unlimited, okay, if he universally dies to save every single human being, then we have to ask, is my salvation fully accomplished by Christ? If he dies for everyone, we have to ask, is my salvation fully accomplished by Christ? And we have to answer it not completely, Because Christ did his part, and I have to do my part, and that is believe. This is called double jeopardy, where Christ pays for the sins of the sinner on the cross, and if the sinner rejects Jesus Christ, then that sinner goes to hell. Why would you have Jesus dying for that person in hell? And then that person in hell still has to suffer under the justice and condemnation of God. This doesn't make any sense. It's a waste of a sacrifice, is it not? If people are still in hell suffering for their own sins. 
if Christ's death was general and universal, then Christ's offer of salvation becomes provisional, depending upon my response. By limiting the atonement, Christ does not actually save me. But again, a point that I've been harping on, but he only makes salvation a possibility. And saints, I will say this, we don't need a possible savior. But we need a savior who actually saves people from their sins. If we reject limited atonement, then we are trusting in a potential savior, not a victorious savior. And that's why many Armenians who say, well, you Calvinists can't really evangelize because you can't tell someone that Jesus died for you. But rather, on the contrary, we can say, well, if you believe in Christ and you can trust that Christ secured your salvation, he paid for your sins on the cross. One theologian uh, summarizes the general view of the atonement, which is the Armenian view, uh, perfectly. He says, the Armenian believes that Christ's death guarantees the actual salvation of not one person. The Armenian believes in a very limited atonement, an atonement that is weak to save. God is helpless and waits for the sinner to save himself by choosing Christ. The Father's plan is to save humanity has been defeated because almost all of mankind has gone to hell. Christ shed his blood and suffered horrible tortures in vain for those who throughout eternity scorn and reject him. The Holy Spirit has been overpowered and successfully resisted by the vast majority of people throughout history. If Arminianism is true, if Christ died for every single person, then God's plan of redemption is a colossal failure. God simply uh, could not get the job done. Can a view which presents Christ's death as a failure be true? Should we believe in a theological system which presents God as merely a puppet of a man, as incompetent in achieving his own purpose? In a nutshell, Arminianism presents a false picture of God, is a man-centered and deadly hybrid between Protestantism and humanism. I would say that the God of Arminianism is not a God that is worthy to be worshipped, but only the God of the Reformed view, of the biblical view of God, is worthy to be worshipped because he actually saves and secures the salvation of his elect. Saints, you have much reason to joy and hope because of this doctrine. Knowing that now, but also when you get to the eternal state, you can believe that Christ really died for you. And when you get to heaven, you can thank the one who was thinking of you over 2,000 years ago. He really had your name written on his heart. And he really was living for you. And he really died for you. And he really rose for your justification. And right now, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, really interceding for you until you come home and be with him forever. This is the view of limited atonement, of the death of Jesus Christ and whom he died for. I would say a doctrine that we aren't to debate much over, which we can, but more so the doctrine that we are to glorify God in light of. Let's pray.